Welcome, and thanks for joining us for this episode of the C3 Church Podcast. You're about to listen into a message from one of our gatherings. To find out more about our community, where we gather both in person and online, and how to get involved, head to cfreechurch.ca. Now, let's listen into a message from a recent service. Uh, it's uh, in October, it was 32 years since we first moved to Revelstoke. And when we first moved to Revelstoke, there was about, about three weeks before we moved here, I was walking around the town we were living in, we were in Vancouver Island. And I was walking around the neighborhood and I was just praying and I felt God drop into my spirit something that has really sustained and held me for 32 years and longer and will continue. I, I, I felt God say when I was there, as I was walking, in fact, I can tell you where I was. I was standing next to a telephone pole. I don't, I don't know why, but it's as vivid in my mind today as it was then. And, and I felt God drop into my spirit. He said, I'm going to give you a revival in Revelstoke. And, uh, you know, we've had some moves of God here. Some of you have been here for a while, and, you know, you'd know that. But I, I don't think we've ever quite seen entirely what God wants to do here yet. And I came on a promise, and I'm going to stay on the promise. You know, I, I love what Abraham, what uh, the writer of the Hebrews talks about Abraham. And he says, he says he pursued a city, and he just kept pursuing it. He just kept going after it no matter what. He died without having achieved it, but he knew it was there, and he kept going. And, you know, I think every one of us, God wants to put something into our heart and into our spirit that's going like, hey, there's this thing that God wants to do, and I'm just going to grab a hold of it, whether it's for your life, for your city, for your church, for your, uh, for your family, that God wants to do that in your life because he, he wants you to grab a hold of something. We are people who are designed to look to the future. We were never designed to look to the past. Have you ever tried walking in a direction while you're looking back? You know, I, in, 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 inevitably, I mean, you know, this, this is a great Canadian thing, right? You know, you're in a grocery store, you're walking down, and you kind of turn like this, and you bump into somebody, and they say sorry. You know, it's, it's always, I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to break my Canadianness, and I'm trying not to apologize when somebody else bumps into me. I know, I know, it's, it's so countercultural, it's scary. Um, but, you, you know, we, we do these things, but God never intended us to walk forward looking back, and always supposed to be walk forward looking forward. What God has for us is always more than what we've already gone through. Why don't you think about that for a minute? What God has in front of us is always more than the blessings behind us. Your future is always greater than your past. Because if you don't believe that your future is greater than your past, you'll stay where you are or you'll go backwards. Because we'll always move towards the direction of our greatest amount of faith. And so we want, we want to do that, and, and we, you know, we're talking about supernatural here, and, and actually I'm going to come at it from a tack that's probably not like everybody else has been coming at it, because I think there's some prerequisites for God working supernatural in our life. I, I, don't, I don't think it's just simply a matter of saying, hey, God's bowing at our command, or God just does what we want him to do. That's, that's kind of backwards. You know, we were saved to serve him, not him to serve us. And, but it's, but we still want to see God work supernaturally in our world. We believe in a supernatural God. We see God working in a supernatural way in places, but we want to see more of God's supernatural power. We want to see more of God's supernatural evidence in our lives. And uh, I I want to take you back to, uh, as we go today, I want to take you to an Old Testament passage. Have you got your Bibles? Um, it's in Second Chronicles chapter 7, and, and if you've been around church circles for a while, you may have heard this verse before. 
The context is that um, in the Old Testament, one of the kings by the name of Solomon uh, had just taken over the kingdom of Israel, and as one of his first acts of um, uh, growing the kingdom is he built a temple for God. His father had prepared all the material, he'd given him the plans and everything else, but it, it, his father didn't build it, David, but Solomon built it. So Solomon built it, and on the day that they dedicated this temple, so here was this temple, Now we understand something, you know, post-Old Testament, you know, in the New Testament, we understand that God's everywhere, and yet we still go some places and we kind of expect God to be there. God's everywhere, and yet he's here. It's, you know, there's this theological conundrum. And so in the Old Testament, they went, yes, God's everywhere, but right in this place, he's kind of more here, if, it, if you will. You know, put it this way, sometimes when you're in, in prayer time, you know God's everywhere, but when you're praying, all of a sudden you feel like God's right there, more there than at other times. And so in the temple... They built this place. They said, here's a place where people are going to come from all over, and they're going to bring their sacrifices. They're going to bring their worship. They're going to bring all these kinds of things. And in that place, they're going to encounter God. And so in the middle of all this, God, uh, uh, Solomon is praying this prayer of dedication to God, and God responds. And this is where we pick up the story in uh, 1 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, 15. It says, God is speaking to Israel. God's speaking to us today. And he says, if my people who are called by my name, I think when we call ourselves Christians, we're kind of saying, hey, I'm calling ourselves by his name. And our followers of Jesus, we're calling them by his name. And uh, he says, if those people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them. I'll hear from heaven, and I'll forgive their sins, and I'll restore their land. My eyes will be open and my ears attentive to every prayer made in this place. This is often a verse that we would use to um, almost as a prerequisite or a precursor to God doing something in us and in our land. I want to kind of walk through today. Uh, I want to talk about the prerequisite of prayer before God can do anything. That unless we become a praying people, God has nothing on which to rest his supernatural power. Let's uh, pray before you, Father. Father, today, just read your word. God, I pray you'd open it up to us. And Lord, I, I know that I have words to share, but God, I pray that more than that, your spirit would speak. And God, we'd hear what you're saying to us today. And God, we'd be able to respond. And God, we'd be able to, to grow into what you want us to be and to become. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so here in 2 Corinthians, he, he lays out this, this, as it were, a prerequisite. God's saying, before I can do something, you have to do something. It's not a contract, but, but, it's, but it's this prerequisite. You know, before I can do something in your land, you need to do something in your heart. It's kind of a challenging statement. In fact, uh, I find it very challenging because prayer is one of the most difficult disciplines of any Christian's life. You know, over the years of pastoring, I have probably heard more people say they have a hard time having a consistent prayer life than say, I have a hard time going to church or I have a hard time reading my Bible. People say, I have a hard time praying. 
Why, why do we have such a hard time praying? Why do we have a, such a hard time doing that? Because it's, it's not intuitive, but it's so incredibly necessary. You know, I often like to uh, use the illustration or kind of use the metaphor of the fact that uh, uh, prayer is really about a relationship. You know, you have a husband and a wife in a relationship. How many times do you say, hey, I wish you'd talk to me more? Well, the guys never say that. Sometimes they do. But there's, there's this, there, in order for a relationship to blossom and to grow, there needs to be communication. Okay, you can't have a relationship where one side isn't communicating with the other side. You know, if we listen to, uh, you know, news and you have uh, um, uh, unions that are negotiating contracts, and the sign that the, break, that the whole thing has broken down, the relational thing has broken down, they say they've walked away from the table. And when you walk away from the table, you can't resolve anything. You can't ignore it. There's no relationship. You're cutting off the relationship. And so this is what, what uh, uh, God's saying to, to the church and saying to the Israelites at the temple, saying, hey, before I can do anything, we need to work on this little part here. And it's not just, hey, I got to pray more. It's not about praying more. It's about how we pray. God's not saying, hey, I want you to come to me and ask for more stuff. Um, asking prayer and bringing God more Christmas lists is not what God's asking for. If, if we read it again, and, and, and I don't know if you've got it open in your Bibles, but if you look at it again for a moment, you'll see that what he says is he says, if my people who are called by name will come and humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn. Turn from their wicked ways. Here's... Here's the kind of prayer that God's asking for as a prerequisite to the supernatural work of God in your life. He's asking for a prayer that acknowledges and responds to our personal sin. When I was in my teens, I found sin a lot easier to define in my life. It was lust. <laughs> it was cheating on homework. You know, it was, you know, it was lying. It was pretty simple, relatively. But as I grew in maturity, I, I discovered that sin wasn't always as simple. It's not that it wasn't simple, but it wasn't as obvious. And in order to discover these things that were in my life, I, I actually had to have a conversation with God about them, not simply look them up in a book. Let me tell you an interesting thing. <clears throat> have you ever noticed that when you read the New Testament, have you read some of the New Testament? Just wave at me. Sitting here, you know, you've, you've read a bit of the New Testament. How many of you noticed that most of the time Jesus talked in stories and metaphors? Well, let, let, me, let me ask you something. If, if, have you ever like, had a conversation with somebody where they're using a metaphor and you don't know what they're saying? How did you figure it out? You had to have a conversation with them. What, what did you mean? Jesus would teach these parables, and, they would, and his disciples would say, hey, um, 
Jesus, we're sorry, but we got no clue what you're saying. Closest people to Jesus, they didn't know. He's telling the story and say, you know what he's saying? And, and, and the people were listening to the story and saying, man, he's such a great storyteller. But we don't get it. Just show us the miracles. Right? And, 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 and Jesus says to disciples, oh, I'm good. And Jesus says to disciples, he says, you know, I, I'm, I'm telling you these stories, but not everybody can understand it. But to you, you get to understand it. Why? Because you can have a conversation with me. There's another group of people that were teaching during Jesus' day. Jesus encountered them all the time. Uh, it was the big letter P. It was the Pharisees. How many of you heard the Pharisees? Right, the Pharisees. Pharisees in the New Testament, they, they were, you know, they get a bad rap, but actually they had a pretty good historical reputation. If you go back into history a little bit, you'll discover that in the, in the period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was this period called, uh, there was a great revolution going on in Israel, led by the Maccabees and, and a bunch of others that were involved in there. And then the Greek empire started to sweep across the earth. And as the Greek empire started to sweep across the earth, they weren't just conquering, they were assimilating. So if you, if you were conquered by the Greeks, you would be expected to pick up their religious habits too. You'd believe in, you know, you, you were expected to believe in, you know, uh, Olympus, and you're supposed to, you know, believe in all of those different gods that the Greeks had, and then be assimilated into the culture because the Greeks thought they, they were the best culture ever. They had art, they had culture, they had, uh, they had uh, sculpture, they had all these kinds of things. And so they were trying to assimilate the whole world and make the whole world Greek. And they did really well with it until they got to the Palestine area where the Jews lived. Because the Jews were, at that point in time, they were pretty intent on the fact that they were only going to serve one God and it wasn't going to be Olympus. And the group that kind of developed to say, okay, what does it mean to not be Greek and to be entirely Jewish was a group that eventually became called the Pharisees. So the Pharisees didn't start off in a negative sense. They were trying to protect what it was to be Jewish, what it was to serve one God. And so they, they said, we're going to help you with this. We're going we're to give you all these rules we're going to give you all these regulations, all these things that if you just follow these, you'll be Jewish. You'll be authentically what it means. So the Pharisees came to, you know, encountered Jesus and said, hey, you can't do that because that's not being a good Jew. Their motives weren't really that bad, but they were still blind. I heard somebody illustrate the Pharisees this way, and he says, they were, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you had this big as many of you probably do, you got a big window in the front of your house, a big picture window. And out of that window, you know, you're looking on the mountains or you're looking at something, and, and you're enjoying that mountain. But what the Pharisees had done is they'd, they'd enjoyed that mountain, but suddenly they got consumed with not the mountain, but with the window. And every time there was a little speck of dirt on the window, they were trying to get rid of the dirt on the window, trying to make sure that the window was clean, that they'd lost their entire perspective on what the window was for. And so they'd reduced Christianity, they'd reduced Jewishness to just a simple of do this, don't do that, walk this way, don't walk that way, wear this clothes, don't wear this clothes, do this on Sunday, don't do this on Sunday, and they reduced it to that. And Jesus came along with this whole different perspective. The most remarkable contrast between the Pharisees 
And Jesus is not what they said, but the type of language they used. Jesus came with stories. He came with metaphors. He came intentionally with language that was entirely open to misinterpretation. Entirely open to not getting it quite right and not understanding it. Because in order to follow Jesus, you couldn't just get a rule book. You had to get a relationship. And so the Pharisees, they were simple. You do this, do that. You didn't have to have a discussion. In fact, the Pharisees weren't the most relational people in the world. Because they had the rules. You do this. Jesus came in this relational environment and said, hey, we have this. So you can... Let me put it this way. You can follow the Pharisees' way of doing things without praying, but you can never follow Jesus without praying. Because you just don't know what you're going to do. Say, well, we just follow the Bible. Are you sure? Are you sure that exactly that that's what that parable meant? Are you sure? We need to actually get, see, in the New Testament tells us that we're going to get this leading of the Holy Spirit. He's going to help us with that stuff. We're going to pray and we're going to get kind of all this stuff happening in our life. And we're going to hear, we're going to understand. So Jesus spoke in terms of relationships and examples of, uh, and stories and metaphors that require interaction. And so God wants us to interact with him. God wants us to relate to him. And that's at the fundamental uh, level in which we can, we can have something happen in our life. Is not because we think this is the way it should do, but because we've had a conversation together. Yeah. Prayer is that conversation. But prayer is not just, God, tell me how this works. But God, I really messed up. You know, you know I, I, I often, you know, I'm thankful for this because uh, I, I often go to my relationship with my wife to help understand God's relationship with me. And it's, and it's a biblical example. God says that, or the Bible says that, uh, that Jesus' relationship to the church is like a husband and wife. And I know that, you know, I can have a conversation with my wife. We can have a communication but if I'm angry about it, it colors the communication. If I've messed up, if I've done something I shouldn't have done in relation to her, it will always affect our ability to have clarity of communication. You with me? So when I've sinned against her, I inevitably cloud the communication and our ability to partner together to do something more than what I could do by myself or she could do by herself. And so in that same sense, when sin comes in our life, we don't always know we've sinned until we get a, talking to God about it. God, why am I keep coming up against this wall? Let, let me be as... as uh, frank, as, as vulnerable, as uh, permissive in a crowd setting. The other day I was, um, I was praying and I was, you know, just saying, God, you know, I'm, 
frustrated about this certain relational thing, and I feel like I get this anxiety. No, it's not anxiety, and I'm, I'm just trying to broaden the term because I don't want to say exactly what God said to me, but <laughs> it's almost like an anxiety encountering people. And I felt like God said to me, he said, you're just afraid of them because you haven't dealt with this. I kind of sat back. I was praying. and got like, you know, well, God, I'm not sure I want to talk about that. Right? What do you do when you don't want to talk about something? You back off. You step away from the table. We still want God to do stuff for us, but we stepped away. Well, God, I'm not sure I want to deal with that right now. You mean being afraid of people is a sin? And he kind of brings a few things to mind. In the Bible, I'm like, oh, shoot. Ever get those moments with God? Oh, shoot. See, because the more we grow in relationship with God, the more God speaks to us in those things. And when he speaks to us in those things, here's, here's the prayer. Again, we're going right back to, to what Second Chronicles said. My people humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways. <laughs> oh, I hate that word, Turn. See, it's, see, here's the problem. Here, here's, here's the problem with this prayer that God's asking us to pray. Is, is it's not just acknowledging that I messed up. It's actually turning away from doing that again. Right. Say, I, I actually have to turn away and do something different next time. Yeah, but God, I said I was sorry, but I didn't want to change anything. Any of you ever? No, you don't have to put your hands up. We pray that kind of prayer. God, I'm sorry, but I don't really want to change anything. And we go, well, you know, I said, told God I was sorry. You know, my wife and I have an argument, and I say, I'm sorry. She says, okay, I forgive you. And then I just keep doing the same thing. Hmm. How does that help the relationship? Big fat zero. This doesn't help it at all. See, see here's, here's the thing. If we want to see God move supernaturally in our life, we have to get really, really real with God. We have to get to this point where we're saying, God, I need you to look at my life because I know there's stuff here that you need to change in order to use me. That you need to do in my life in order so that I can do things. So prayer becomes this foundational thing that God wants, that we need to uh, develop, we need to uh, work at, we need to, I, I don't know how to put it, we need to... Um, um, Practice. Practice. Carrie Newhoff, who was a Canadian pastor, he's, he said this. He said, prayer is not a button to be pushed. It's a relationship to be pursued. I love it. I love it. It's not a button that I push. Oh, I prayed this morning. Check it off. I have devotions on my to-do list. I'm scared to put prayer on there. Because I don't want it to be now this morning, I checked it off. I'm done. I prayed today. I put my wife on there. Talk to Kim. Check it off. Did it today. That sounds ridiculous. Because it is. Same way I don't put prayer on there. Because it's not something to do. It's not a button to push. It's a relationship to pursue. Jesus taught his disciples, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 to 13. He says, pray like this, our Father in heaven. May your name be kept holy. You know, I, I was praying this, I just to say this, I was praying this the other day. 
And, you know, I, I like to take time and pray when I'm praying. And I prayed the other day, and, and I felt like God spoke to me about it in a way I'd never spoke to before. I, it's kind of like God give me, gives a little bit, and he doesn't give you all. But, you know, it says, our Father. I used to pray my Father. My Father. Father in heaven. Just skip to our. Father in heaven. But then I realized our, it had, there was this context that Jesus was talking about. Our. But then the other day, I, I felt like God said, he said, but you, you missed something. Jesus said our. Jesus was included in the Our Father. When we pray, when we come in this attitude, it's not just us praying, it's Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit praying with us. Romans says that the Holy Spirit prays on our behalf with groans that can't be uttered, things that can't be uttered, things that can't be spoken. God wants to pray in us and through us. And, and when we partner in that, this whole prayer is just incredible. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. Don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. I know I skipped a bit in there, but there's a whole bunch in this story that in this prayer that Jesus gives us, that should give us this guideline, this, 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 this way that we can come to God. Let me kind of bring some of this together here right now into how this works for supernatural revival. Remember I started off, I said revival. I, I, I believe revival is a supernatural time when God supernaturally encounters his people, but it never happens in a vacuum. It never happens, oh, out of the blue, God started working in my life. It doesn't happen that way. In, uh, in the early 1900s, 1904, 1905, there was a, a revival in Wales, and it's been called the Welsh Revival. One of the key figures in that revival was a guy by the name of Evan Roberts. And it said of Evan, Evan Roberts that before that revival started, he prayed every day for 13 years. Anybody feel like giving up after one, actually two months? See, the problem is we were, I heard this phrase the other day, and I thought it was really good, describe the church as a contrast community. Not as a counterculture, but as a contrast community. God says, wait on me. Contrast, world says, I want it now. Contrast community. Evan Roberts prayed for 13 years. A, uh, an observer uh, is quoted from the Welsh Revival, an observer is quoted, and it says, if it, if it be asked why the fire of God fell on Wales, the answer is simple. Fire falls where it's likely to catch and spread. As one has said, Wales provided the necessary tinder. Here were thousands of believers unknown to each other in small towns and villages and great cities crying to God day after day for the fire of God to fall. This was not merely a little talk with Jesus, but daily agonizing intercession. If my people... In 1906, a remarkable thing began to happen in a little part on the wrong side of the tracks in Los Angeles on a street called Azusa Street. Some of you may have heard the term Azusa Street. It's what's considered, that particular revival is considered the foundation or the start of what we call modern-day Pentecostalism. We're, our roots are in that. But in 1906, a preacher by the name of William Seymour started preaching 
something that he had not yet seen. He started preaching that God wanted to baptize people in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues before he had even been baptized in the Holy Spirit and spoken in other tongues. He saw in the Bible, he said, I want it, I'm going to preach it. And he started preaching it in this little mission, this little room in, in 1906 on, on, on Azusa Street, and it kicked off, inevitably kicked off the Pentecostal movement, ran for, from 1906 to 1915 continuously in that little place in Azusa Street. And it says that leading up to that Azusa Street revival, William J. Seymour used to pray seven hours a day. Evan Roberts prayed every day for 13 years. William Seymour prays seven hours a day. And revival comes. There's a one final example that I, I want to bring to you. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says, They all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and several other women and the brothers of Jesus. This is the disciples. This is 120 of the early disciples. It says they were constantly, or they all met together and were constantly united in prayer. <clears throat> The, um, the term united in prayer is actually kind of a unique biblical term in English, but it's, it's even more interesting in the original language. In the original language, it's, it's not just a simple unity. It's a passionate unity. It's, not even, a, it, it's even hard to really describe it. It's the intensity of the unity is that like, this is a fought for unity to pray together. This is an intensity to pray together, to seek God together in this. And this is, the, this is what is described here in Acts chapter 1, this constantly united in prayer. And so then we find Acts chapter 2. And again, we come back to you know, what we call the day of Pentecost. And Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. It doesn't say they were praying. But we know they were praying because in Acts chapter 1, it says they all met together and were constantly united in prayer. So they were meeting and they were praying. We know that they hadn't just started praying that day. We know that they'd been praying for at least 50 days because the day of Pentecost is 50 days after Passover, which was when Jesus was crucified. So they'd been praying for quite a while and they'd been they, they'd been gathering and saying, Jesus said, wait, so we're just doing it. And while we're waiting, we're praying. We're waiting for God to do something, but we're not standing by and doing nothing. We're praying. And while they were praying, they were dealing with stuff in their life. They were dealing with their issues. They were dealing with their attitudes. But they were waiting and praying and expecting God to do something. Verse 2, it says, suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. You say, supernatural? Something supernatural happened? Just out of the blue? No, it didn't just happen out of the blue. It happened because 2 Chronicles chapter 7 started happening. My people who would seek my face 
turn from their wickedness, turn from those things, get into relational prayer, not date night, but relational prayer. See the examples of William Seymour, Evan Roberts, and there's so many more. We said, look, this is so important. This is bigger than me. It's bigger than my time. This is bigger than anything else. But this is. So church today. This is, this is what God says about how he moves. He partners with us. He moves with us. But he moves out of relationship. He moves out of that intensity of relationship and that praying and seeking him. You know, pretty much any morning that I'm preaching or sharing or, well, pretty much any morning, I, I, you know, as I'm praying, I ask God, I say, God, what do you want to do? You know, what, what is it? What is, what is today? What is it you want to do? You know, I, I love when, you know, it's one of those exciting times, you know, I want to really stir people up and encourage people, and, you know, because God says that. And this, but when I was praying about service today, I, I actually... I really felt God say, said, no, what, what, what we need is repentance. It's easy to, you know, want something from God, but it's harder when God wants something from us. I, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I have this growing thing and that, that God wants you know, I said the term contrast community, that we're a different community than the world around us. We contrast that. And, and I think outside the community, outside of church, the world, as we would say it, say, hey, you overcome your weaknesses. You overcome those things. God says, no, you confess them and you repent of them. And then you let me partner with you to make you into a new creature. And I kind of, I'll be completely frank, I, I, I heard God say that as I was praying, and I heard him say repenting. And honestly, I got here and I went, how do you do that? Not, not how do you repent, but how do you call a church to repent? How do you say, you know, hey, now, what do you do in this moment? But here's what we're going to do. This is a... In some ways, this is highly symbolic. So follow me on this. But we've often called the front of the church, we've called it the altar. I know it's not an altar. I know it's not, you know, there's no physical significance to that but there is a spiritual significance because the altar is a place where you sacrifice you bring your very best and you sacrifice it it's also the place where you acknowledge that I haven't done things right and I need to change and I need to do things and God I'm bringing you my best so that you can do something in me
the growing thing, the thing that sticks in me is just bothering me day in and day out. When I wake up, I, I, I probably go to bed with it, and I, I wake up in the morning with this, this it's, like, it's like the stone in your shoe. God is this, is that, is that, we stopped being a contrast community when we expected God to do stuff for us when we weren't living our life for him. And the only way we get to living our life for him is repentance. Thanks for tuning in today. Each week, we gather in cities across our region and online to explore the truth of freedom available to all in the message of Jesus Christ. To find a gathering near you or to find out more, head to c3church.ca.